everyone, and welcome back to We Regret the Error, a Protean Collective podcast. This is a show where we explore how leftists of all stripes choose to engage with and create media. I'm your host, Mel G. Today, we are joined by Dominique Remy, a documentary filmmaker currently working on a fantastic project called Canary. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe your politics, if you feel comfortable discussing them, or if you have any organizing experience that you're particularly proud of? Um, let's just riff on it for a sec. Awesome. Hi. Um, thank you for having me on your show. Um, yeah, I am actually pretty new to leftist politics. Um, and part of that um, awakening happened in tandem with the film. I was doing a lot of research um, personally with regards to feeling really alienated um, within like uh, feminist spaces, but also <laughs> at work um, and not having, at the time I didn't have any, there was like no way to have any collective bargaining. Um, <laughs> and I was weirdly unaware of like the intricacies of unionism, despite like, I obviously know about unions. Um, so, I would say like the 2016 election was a catalyst where like I had just like all these like feelings of um, disappointment mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it was from all ends. And then when, you know, the most prominent of uh, the decaying rot of, you know, the system, which is in the form of fascism, in this administration, I think that's really when I, um, I snapped in, in a good way. And, you know, thankfully, I was guided to the right side of history and, you know, other sources to funnel my anger and then to also educate. And then that also happened to help me formulate this um, film. Um, the film, Canary, is about, we, we are right now as like a two-woman team trying to investigate um like the social determinants of uh maternal health care and why that might may lead to um negative outcomes like mortality and uh, morbidity and social determinants in sociology it's like the social factors and economic factors that play into people's lives and how that affects their care so that's pretty much the film, um, like the very broad thesis of the film. Um, what we are doing to get to that point is to have a very holistic view. So we're tracing the history of like obstetrics and gynecology, which for um, many people, myself included, you know, around like 2015, um, 2016 in New York, when there was protests to remove the father of gynecology through his statue that's when I learned that he was um and his name is Dr. Marion Sims he was you know the architect of a lot of the tools that are used today and a lot of those tools that were are used today were experimented cruelly on um slave women mm -hmm. so that's one aspect that we want to trace um and then also 
introduce um, how austerity cuts, particularly in the past like 30 to 40 years, have been exacerbating, um, you know, not having social safety nets and positive rights for people who want to either have children or not have children um, in terms of reproductive care and insurance. Um, and so that's where the economics part comes in um, because the you I don't have the exact graph with me, um, but you can see it, there's a correlation between like the uh, Clintonian like welfare cuts um, and this like steady steady increase in the rates of mortality. So that's something we really want to underscore as well. Mm. So you're hoping to sort of track the uh, relationship between um, austerity and po- policies of austerity in mm-hmm. in economics in this country and how it actually increases maternal mortality and morbidity among childbearing people, essentially. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And then how like other structures, um, you know, legacies like from slavery, um, just being, you know, a white settler colonial um, country affects that as well. So like all of these things um, to have a very holistic um, view of what's going on because we don't reproduce nor do we live in a vacuum and all of these play, like all of these things play into it. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, So, so what's significant about the title Canary? Why choose that? I... I was workshopping the thesis with a um, family nurse um, and she's a researcher out in the Bay Area, um, Monica McLemore. And I, because it is when I first approached it was very, and still a little bit um, abstract when we think about it in like this like, 30,000, you know, view, um, trying to understand it very abstractly, um, especially since the narratives coming out are more about medical um, racial bias and, and about like, oh, the body itself, like what is, what's wrong with Black women's bodies, uh, you know, indigenous bodies, that there's just, you know, the higher incidences of mortality, which is something I want to move away from. I don't want to have this kind of essentialism where the onus is on the groups, like the onus is on the groups themselves, um, because everyone's been having children for however long. we've been around so why is it just now something where it's spiking to a point where it seems like a crisis um so when i was you know you know trying to contextualize all the things that i wanted to put together and then you know she helped me come up with like you know you know let's focus on the social determinants and she's like you know these deaths are kind of like the canary in the coal mine. And I was like, that's exactly how I thought of it. I thought of it as like, we need to look at, you know, the statistics or like even go behind the headlines and move backwards. So 
what I say is, you know, just because the causes of maternal mortality and morbidity aren't immediately perceptible, it's deadly nonetheless, kind of like the canary in the coal mine, which is for people who don't know is like an American idiom where, you know, back in the coal mining days, um, they would have a really cute canary bird in a cage um, as a detector of like really like these um, invisible gases that could be released during work. And if, you know, the canary passes away, that's indication of um, something to avoid while working. Right. So a larger problem. So you see these, just as you're talking about these economic determinants, um, being, you know, directly connected to maternal mortality and morbidity, you can also look at those rates um, and those statistics and sort of flip it and and see what is coming as a result of these sort of uh, changing or worsening economic or social conditions. Is that is that kind of what you're thinking of? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how did this project get started? So you sort of touched on it, but was there any specific moment that sort of first interest you in this topic within reproductive justice? Well, it was personal. Um, I know, yeah, I talked about how like it really helped my political um, awakening um, to like be very clear. I am a leftist (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I do have to credit, you know, Dr. Angela Davis for being my, mentor not really she's not an actual mentor but you know I just like Mm -hmm. devoured so much of her work um and her life story while you know getting into reproductive justice and then it was afterwards I found out that she was actually on board um with the reproductive justice movement which is different from reproductive rights uh which started further back with Roe versus Wade reproductive justice was created by um, a collective of Black women in 1994 at the height of um, the Clinton administration talking about universal health care and welfare cuts. And they were very concerned, where does this leave people who are, you know, probably going to be most vulnerable to the cuts? Um, where do we hold space for them? And, you know, it's, you know, both the framework and a praxis and I found out after reading a lot of Angela Davis that she actually, you know, signed off on, you know, um, uh, uh, how would I say, endorsing the reproductive justice framework. Um, but to how I even got to specifically focusing on reproductive justice, um, kind of like I was saying, being really feeling really alienated with mainstream feminism because I was having a lot of health issues um and I think I offline I told you a little bit about what was going on um it's still pretty much continuing but I was uninsured and I was having terrible um menstrual cycles at one point it was I remember it's February because February is the shortest month I just like was menstruating the entire month and it was Mm. incredibly disruptive and feeling you know seeing a lot of other people feeling that political power you know there was like the women's march and I'm like but I felt very empty I was like I don't see many black faces to be quite blunt with you Mm -hmm. talking about anything other than choice and I 
think choice is incredibly important. I, um, I, like even in the film, I'm not going to like disaggregate how um, the, the, how the draconian abortion bills also happen to be in the same states where there's, you know, no Medicaid expansion and high mortality rates, you know, it's two mm-hmm. sides of the same coin. So I do absolutely think it's important, but I just felt like there was just not more discussion or diversity of needs or just rather <laughs> regular old diversity. It felt very white and privileged. And I pretty much was like, what is feminism for black women? And that's when I got, I actually ended up on like the second page of a Google search, you know, reproductive justice and um, was introduced to Dr. Loretta Ross, who wrote the uh, prime round reproductive justice. Um, And then that led me to Black Mamas Matter Alliance, where they are utilizing that framework to combat and ameliorate the maternal mortality crisis and then you know I would have like tabs open and I would keep um in tuned with it then I started to just like develop like I think this needs to be at first I was like I think this needs to be like a mini series or of some sort and I was actually in film school at the time and my the only other black woman and my comrade um uh Mishida Phillips uh who also has her own story to tell with regards to reproductive um her reproductive health um and struggles I was like I want to pair up with you because I just like feel like there's like there's so much underneath this surface when we talk about feminism and reproductive rights like that includes us all and I I, I want to put it on screen and so we initially started out developing it as a series where we would talk about everything pretty much so it would be like one aspect would be maternal mortality one aspect would be about like endometriosis and fibroids which is something that actually affects um black and indigenous women at higher rates um and things like that and then when i just kept my focus on maternal mortality rates and kind of seeing from like 2016 to like even 2018 how much more people are talking about it, especially with, you know, Serena Williams and Beyonce um, talking about their own struggles with maternal morbidity and uh, NPR and ProPublica teamed up and had this whole podcast called Lost Mothers about Shalon Irving. People were starting to, like, starting to kind of like see that there is an issue very proud, very like by osmosis maybe but it is coming out in the news and it's like, I think it's time for, although I would love to talk about it all. I think it really is time to focus in on this because the fact that people are dying Mm -hmm. gave me such malaise. And I, I wanted to hyper-focus on that as to like, what can we do instead of like putting it all together and making a potpourri, what can I do for this specific part of reproductive justice? Right. Yeah, this often seems like a sort of overlooked section of uh, conversation surrounding reproductive health, particularly in the mainstream and definitely among mainstream feminists. You know, you don't you don't hear a whole lot of conversation about specifically one, what maternal mortality and morbidity morbidity even is. Um, A lot of it is centered around, like you said, choice. So what happens to the childbearing people who choose to have children? You know, not not necessarily the people who choose to terminate pregnancies. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this is an important, 
conversation to have. Um, for any of my listeners who may not be familiar with these terms, could you just briefly tell us what maternal mortality and morbidity is? Yes. Yeah, so um, the mortality part is when a person who has given birth or is giving birth passed away. Um, and the window is actually pretty large, according to the um, National Institute of Health. And the CDC, um, it isn't people sometimes will think like, oh, it happened during like a, C a botched C-section or like during actual labor, but it could include that and it could be up to one year mm. um, because another aspect of um, uh, maternal care is the aftercare, which is very disjointed and kind of up to however way you organize your community and family there is nothing set in place for aftercare like in terms of having a nurse go home with you or you know doulas and midwives being here to you know guide you afterwards um or maybe even having <laughs> family leave that would allow the body to rest there is a lot of uh people who work hourly wages and are probably also low income who don't even have that luxury to take two weeks off to recuperate and you know the two three weeks that's really important and that can you know heighten your rates of dying it's the 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 process of giving birth is traumatic regardless of who you are it is it's a pretty heavy laborious thing hence why it's called labor um but there are other factors that can really make it extremely dangerous for you um and it's not just like oh you know because my body is this and that it it, it is other you know social determinants and these other factors so mortality is a, a death that is a recorded death morbidity is the Diseases, I would say, and complications that come that arrive with pregnancy. So, one potential subject that we are working with is an undocumented woman um, who had um, heart. Um, she had um, like an underlying heart issue, which was exacerbated by the by the pregnancy and her risk of you know dying. Um, for lack of a better, you know, term, um, was very high. And she also had the stress of being undocumented and not having all the right resources to attend to it outside of an emergency situation. So that would be morbidity. So like um, one big one or two big ones that I have come across in my research are hypertension afterwards. Um, Two of the high, two of the most talked about cases that I mentioned, like Serena Williams and Shalon Irving, were that they felt hypertension or hypertensive symptoms surrounding their pregnancy and afterwards. And Shalon Irving, unfortunately, because she wasn't tended to properly, passed away from a, a stroke. And um, another one is hemorrhaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those would be classified as morbidities. There's a lot to this very complex issue. Um, mm -hmm. 
Your project description on GoFundMe says this in part. Canary aims to connect how the state, cultural and social influences, environmental and economic inequalities, factors into the conditions of the lives of people who bear children. As Marxists, we often find ourselves engaging in this sort of analysis on like a larger societal scale. Um, so what have you noticed during the course of your investigation that deals with childbearing people more specifically? I know you've touched on some of this, but do you find that these inequalities are hitting childbearing people at a um, more intense or higher rate than, than society at large? Or do you find that more individuals are sort of falling through the cracks because the social safety net in our system is non-existent? Um, what are some of the things that you've noticed? Yeah, so I would say I feel that it's more of the latter. And another interesting thing is that I, I do feel that it is overwhelmingly that there the social safety nets just aren't there to help like my big thing is th that it's obscene that we are the only developed country and that's that term is problematic and we talk about the global south but we are the only developed country without you know like mandated federal family leave and so people of all walks have to just be at the mercy of the company that they work at, which right. is crazy to me. <laughs> um, and so the, that's one of the things that I find is just like, we just don't have an infrastructure in place to, to assist, you know, people who give birth with this whole process. And I do find that it has one really interesting thing is that it has crossed class lines. Um, going into it with a very materialist analysis I was like well it's you know it's probably has something to do with poverty or like like access to care or like commodification of care and those are all parts of it is like there's more people who are like myself and are working class and there are more Serena Williams but Serena Williams and I are in the same group of people who would be most affected. I am a black woman myself. So I did notice that. So that's where I, I did find the racial element to be really important to investigate as well. And I think that's where I feel <laughs> in my mind. I'm like, this is like what we, what Marxists or some Marxists talk about, like with the dialectical, materialist analysis is that you know there is the superstructure of capitalism which is absolutely crushing us all but then there's also these other structures like you know racial oppression um and the stress that goes into that with regards to child bearing and rearing um and then there is you know because you are part of a certain group of people you might be and you might be living in a specific neighborhood that's not really amenable to the like the environment, both like actual air quality, water quality, um, housing, or just environment in terms of not having those, um, not having the resources, not feeling safe, um, just not having a place where you can, you know, live in a community um where you all feel like you're protected um because of you know the <laughs> integration of the state there there are places where they're heavily policed and that also affects um 
affects a childbearing and child rearing. There's has been studies that I am reading and trying to figure out how to integrate it because I did speak to a doula about this. Um, she does a lot of community work with uh, people who have just witnessed like a lot of shootings, um, police shootings specifically, um, and how that actually affects the outcomes of people who give birth. So there's like all of these things that I I have come across in my research that really made me think about it in in a different way. Um, or I, I wouldn't say different way because the material analysis is still there. That doesn't that's like that's foundational. Right. Um, I guess like expand how they all intersect. Right. So you're finding that beyond just uh beyond class lines, you're still seeing the same sort of oppressive racial disparity that exists across most cross sections of our society in terms of institutions, particularly medical institutions, mm-hmm. in that the same group of people, regardless of class, are still being treated with the same sort of racial bias that exists uh, in a system, in a society that is built upon these sort of oppressive racial structures. Yeah. Um, you know, when you talk about it, it it's not, you know, as Marxists, we often are like, well, that's not surprising, you know, but it still is something that is um, sort of jarring to hear about, um, mm-hmm. that we have uh, a system in place that is continually separating and um, denying care to certain individuals based on um, skin color or socioeconomic background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really... Um, this is a really important conversation to have because now we're experiencing the COVID-19 crisis and this pandemic that's uh, being mishandled spectacularly by our administration. Um, And I think a lot about how this might actually affect the availability of care for childbearing people in the United States. You know, um, particularly pregnant people are still going to have babies and we're going to have hospitals that are overrun with sick people and, you know, without having these sort of social structures in place already, um, I would not be surprised um, if the sort of infant and mother mortality rates continue to skyrocket as this crisis continues to be um, even more intense and exacerbated by our administration's inability to really handle the crisis in any particularly productive way, right? Absolutely. I think you, as you were saying, I I was thinking exactly that um, just down to the the most necessary basic emergency resources um, that are being maxed out by people who have COVID-19 themselves, you know, like you said, children are still going to be born um and that that really does impact that that those really precious moments where you probably need emergency care someone um it probably can even be worse for someone who has comorbidities while pregnant and mm-hmm. that is something that already um you are immunocompromised I hate saying this word. Your your immune system is compromised, right? Um, and it's dangerous because then it's you, and then uh, the fetus or the child. Um, and up until last night, we have been hearing <laughs> that 
children are not as vulnerable to it as like the older set. Then yesterday I saw from the UK that there was one infant who was infected with COVID-19 in utero. Hmm. So every day we get like news about this. Um, and although like I do believe the science and I think the scientists are right there with, you know, giving us the most important facts in a timely fashion, despite us not being tested <laughs> in this right. country. Um, I do think things change so quickly that even like the scientists are also learning on the job. And I think that that is really tricky for people who are with children um, with this entire disaster. And like, you know, they, I saw also with regards to, you know, more economic and social aspects, I saw that they did pass a paid family sick leave, but it only covers 20% of the American workforce, which is, that's, that's what I'm talking about when I, when my personal politics really get into this film is that we need to stop these stop gaps and these like means tested programs. Like it, we just need to have the basics and it needs to cover all people. And one of the things that I take with me as a leftist is that, you know, especially leftist who's very interested in um, liberation. Um, it's a liberation for us all. So like one set of people cannot just be propped up as, you know, the specific protected class under neoliberalism and then that's it. That's progress. No. When we all get free, you know what I'm saying? Mm. That's when it, that's when it counts. Um, and that will happen when the most battered, beaten down historically of us are free. Right. Um, and that, that is, you know, the people, the people who, whose bodies, whose families, whose, you know, spirits have been used to build this very state are the ones who demand liberation. And that is the liberation we're moving towards because when that happens, everything is undone. When we fight for the liberation of people who are descendants of slaves and, you know, people whose land have been dispossessed in this country and they've been corralled into reservations, like that's when we also do the work of undoing white supremacy and starting to shift the notion of what it means to even have a white settler colonial state. And that that is like, that is the liberation. Right. Yeah. Right. Where what's the, the popular anarchist saying is um, I'm not free until we're all free, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's to boil I, it down into something cheeky, but Pretty much. That's how I feel. And I do feel that liberation does come with material conditions being vastly improved. Right. So I agree. it's both. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I'm, um, I'm wondering, are you going to, uh, given the outbreak of this pandemic, will you be including more investigative resources in terms of how the pandemic affects the maternal mortality morbidity rate? I mean, it's, I'm not sure if, 
within the timeline that you're looking for that you might be able to get some solid data sets, but it could be something interesting that you include in the creation of your your film as you are filming. I'm, it's, I would be curious to see how that uh, um, affects um, certain populations of people in the, in the coming year and a half, two years, right? Yeah, that, that is something I, I've been keeping an eye out um, for kind of like that news out in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so it like it, cause it's all of it is coming. It's very preliminary. And um, so many of the birth workers that I am, you know, I have in like the films cadre um, are also doing a lot of like pulling all of this like information community wise. So mm-hmm. that's coming in. Um, but I right now don't know how that would shape up because it is just like so day by new. day. Yeah, yeah. So new. Yeah. So you've mentioned a few people that you have already included in your documentary. Um, what other interviews have you secured? Who else is going to be um, part of your uh, group of, of experts that you're um, hoping to interview uh, as you continue filming? Yeah, so I wanted to, if you don't mind, like kind of explain the structure of the film. Sure. Um, and because it is a documentary, it is subject to change. But this is how we envision it. Um, and I think it's pretty solid, but I'm biased. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we want to, we want to follow um, three people. We have already a subject. Um, but it is a birth worker, so a doula and midwife, which I think are really important in integrating um, them into the overall care structure um, when we do talk about like white supremacist mm. structures. Um, the, I, t- I talked about obstetrics and gynecology being a being an industry that was at least the more modern aspect of it was built with black bodies, but not with black bodies in mind in terms of care and compassion. And that is obviously how the system works, whether, you know, people are overtly racist, the structure itself is inherently, um, is, is inherently you know, uh, antagonistic to black bodies. So having doulas and midwives, which is something that was available to people, um, you know, coming off the slave ships, like the first midwife was in 1619, um, when first slaves touched down um, in, in the colonies. So like that is something that is a long-standing tradition that comes from more community and family matrilineal care. So I think that needs to be integrated into um, providing a good, at least, aura <laughs> for people right. who um, just need an advocate. They need like a coach basically by their side who's also very knowledgeable about like the centuries old, you know, um, traditional and scientific information. Um, so we want to follow birth workers. Um, I am in touch with a couple of collectives here in Brooklyn. Um, 
and also reproductive justice advocates who are doing a lot of like organizing on the ground and lobbying for legislation that would secure positive rights for people who, um, you know, choose to bear children, choose not to, it's a whole, it's all together. And then also to speak with families who have been affected by this tragedy. So have like that, you know, these three, um, main characters so to speak to be in the film um and have their own arcs um and then interwoven we would have people speak to you know on a very um a granular expert level why we think this is going on in addition to like having the more humanistic side of you know what is going on so I'm really excited to say that um, a good comrade of mine, um, a partner um, in this project, uh, in terms of like at least helping me flesh out the economic side of it, is um, David Griscom, who is the um, economic a- analyst on the Michael Brooks show. So, really excited to have him on board. Um, we also have. Uh, an upcoming interview. I know it was a little for out when I did reach out to her, but she's very on board with this. Um, the author of Birthing a Slave, um, Dr. Marie Jenkins Schwartz, um, she talks all about, you know, giving birth in the antebellum South and like how plantations served as like this um, testing ground for white doctors and the professionalization of obstetrics um and we have spoken with uh a community organization out in the south bronx um it's a very small organization called radical health and we were able to get there's the story of like how that organization came to be um Mm -hmm. and also their own birth stories which is sadly very familiar um both had very traumatic birthing um stories although their children are now happy and healthy and they are also happy and healthy um they also went through really dehumanizing um uh dehumanizing experiences so that's kind of what we're starting to piece together and um i am working with um uh, a nurse as well she um you can find her on twitter her name is a uh, nurse katie mcfadden um and she's actually one of the she is the whistleblower for one of the worst hospitals um that's been profiled in ProPublica. um it's suny downstate in brooklyn it has both very high maternal and infant mortality rates and um the uh, largest group that they serve is majority Black Caribbeans, um, a group that I'm part of. I'm Haitian, and it serves mostly Haitian immigrants. Um, so it's really personal for me, in addition to just like, this is part of my politics. But yeah, so that's kind of where it's starting to piece together. Um, yeah, she, just to go back to Nurse Katie, she led the Equity for Downstate campaign where all of the state hospitals were given $50 million in a budget except for SUNY Downstate. So she was able to 
get the like galvanize the community and you know bring attention and awareness to why Sandy Downstate doesn't have fifty million dollars and oh maybe that fifty million dollars is what's leading to it being so understaffed and there's just like no specialists like even like the allotted number of specialists that's supposed to be there to assist with like premature babies being born and like that's probably why the care like the care would lead to such devastating effects Mm -hmm. um so she has been very great at connecting all of those dots and then also getting 50 million dollars for SUNY Downstate so those are the kinds of people we are um putting together and creating a narrative with I mean that sounds like a slam dunk cast of people to be honest (laughs) thank you um so you'll be filming in New York primarily I'm assuming yeah, for right now, um, because I am based in New York, it is a little bit easier, but there is just like, it was mind blowing to me that I was previously out in the Bronx. Um, it was mind blowing to me to find out that Brooklyn and Bronx had such high rates in like, I just, for some reason, I just like could not understand how New York, so cosmopolitan, it's like the apex of like global economy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You would think that things would be slightly better because, you know, I, when I was first doing my outline, thinking of like focusing in on rural Georgia, because I did see a documentary, excuse me, talked about rural Georgia and, you know, how, you know, some of the, some of the hospitals have gone private and then they've shut down, which like goes to like my whole commodification of care and why that would lead to really negative out, um, um, outcomes but we will be filming in New York um because I do think it does for the purposes um serve as a microcosm but I do want to go in other places in the country um mo- like I just mentioned Georgia most importantly Georgia um because that is also where Sister Song the reproductive justice um organization like the the first one mm-hmm. um that's where they are headquartered so i wanted to really touch base with um people um down there um and also understand like the George, like the south the southern dynamics um i also um i also have been keeping track of a uh i want to say they're navajo um doula collective that's really reclaiming birth in a really in a really interesting way um and you know doing the whole like birth for us by us um so and I think that's something that needs to be of course highlighted in the film so I want to go out to the southwest and you know get those stories and also um the bay area where the rates are really high and it's not lost on me that is also where there is just like an obscene amount of like housing and income inequality so these things i want to kind of put together and this one last part might be a little ambitious but i do remember um during standing rock that there was this one activist and um water keeper what is it waterkeeper or water protector i think it is um when they had you know had given birth on the land that the state so desperately wants to desecrate and how symbolic that was i want to go out there and um capture that story as well right 
Well, I don't think that's particularly ambitious. I think that would be a great addition to what is already a fantastic project. So hopefully you get a chance to do that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the challenges to filming. What has been sort of maybe like the key thing that has been something that you've been struggling as a group putting this film together um, just to get the project off the ground? Maybe like <laughs> finances, travel, securing the interview subjects. What, what do you think is like the thing that is um, something that a hurdle that you've had to get over that you're continually working on stepping over in order to make this film? Yeah, so securing uh, interview subjects has been so nice, actually. Um, <laughs> it's, I think that the way that I pitched this film, um, I have been able to like explain it to people. Um, they're really on board, and that's been incredibly um, touching. <laughs> really good for morale when people who you admire and whose work you've been needing to you know, put together this film are on board to help you, um, you know, to give, you know, their little bit of like a little synthesis of what they, they have to offer um, for the overall narrative. So like that's surprisingly been the best part of um, putting the film together. Uh, as you touched upon, it has been finances. My uh, producing partner and I are, completely independent filmmakers we were laid off um and I think that's why I was able to take up this film project it's been three years to be completely honest with you yeah <laughs> that I've been working on this that I had a very daunting full-time job um and I was also going to school and you know life just gets in the way but you know because of such job precarity, I'm not the only person who's been laid off. I think it was during that moment um, where they were slashing a lot of, I was working in media. Um, mm -hmm. They were slashing a ton of media jobs, like BuzzFeed like uh, laid off close to like 300 people in one day. Mm -hmm. It was like massacre. So I, we were part of, I wasn't part of BuzzFeed, but I'm saying like the whole media sector had a bit of a shakeup. Right. Um, and that's kind of when I was able to like seize that opportunity in terms of time right? to really put together something very meaningful. Um, and I have seen other pieces and documentaries and news stories about this and they feel very extractive because there is a sense of urgency to get the story out there. I get it. Right. Um, that is something as a principle for this production and just my productions in general is to not be extractive but to hold space for people to tell their stories and I just want to be the person who provides them with that screen time um so I think that's a that's a fantastic way to go about it I think, I think yeah when you have the ability to provide a platform for a particular group of people you don't want to rush it Exactly. You, know, you want to be able to provide that platform for as long as they need it to tell the story that they're trying to tell. And I think Precisely. that is a fantastic way to look at this project. So, you know, if it takes three years, if it takes 10, I, I, I will be ready to watch it whenever it is released. <laughs> awesome. That sounds great. Thank yeah. you. But yeah, the, so I have, so I have a wealth of time, but I don't have actual wealth. Right. So that is the biggest hurdle. Um, is um, navigating the grant space, to be quite honest. Uh, <laughs> I 
I have, I've been writing packages to send to, you know, to send to get, you know, documentary grants and they have been pretty tricky. Um, writing grants is very, is a very specific art form. It's art yeah. and art and a science. Um, but also trying to, trying to show the value monetarily for this project has been something I am not quite used to um, as someone who doesn't live as or live in the space of like what's most marketable despite being someone who's worked in marketing that right. is not my passion which is why I don't take it with me and it's not my personal um, value set <laughs> it's like right. I have this movie and it's gonna like make 20 million in um it's going to make 20 million in ticket sales. It's like, no, I have this movie that needs to be out there because this is the message. Right. <laughs> that people need. This is, so this is a story that I want to tell. How do you put a price tag on that? Yeah. Right. Right. So like, that's been um, pretty tricky um, because of grant writing. I actually did have to literally line item this film and I do have a budget. Um, but still it's, it's been pretty tricky trying to trying to get the financing I would like, um, and I personally would like it to be more grassroots and lean less heavily on foundations um, um, and private investors, just because I want to keep that integrity, <laughs> that creative integrity. You never know when. You do have a producer on board who is footing the bill, how they want to cut the film, um, which is why I'm, you know, trying to make it more grassroots and crowdfunded as possible. Um, the plan moving forward is to get enough to cut at least a nice portion of the film, at least like the New York leg of the film, to right. be honest, and have some of that for something like for people who have been donating, who've been following me, who've been supporting me, I really appreciate it, um, so that they can see something. Uh, it is a visual medium after all, and I would love to cut something, just so also from my own person, personal creative process, so I can see how things are shaping um, and continue to give that kind of content out there and keep like the people who, are like-minded, you know, uh, leftist Marxists, um, or people who are interested in like racial, um, reproductive and economic justice, galvanize and then spread the word, you know, further out to people who may not even know that this is an issue. So this is like the next step to have some part of um, the film um, to be put together and to be released to the public. <laughs> I have my, my, one of my, my final question is, you know, when can we expect to see this film released? Um, clearly it's still a work in progress. Do you mm -hmm. have a basic timeline of when you would like to see it released or is that sort of just as long as it takes um, and we'll get updates sooner rather than later about it? I, I'm a very like coordinated, um, uh, I like schedules mm -hmm. a lot. Um, whether or not I keep to them based on how I feel mm. <laughs> physically, that's a different story, but I do really like writing things out and uh, having things in my calendar. So I did have a bit of, um, 
I did have a bit of a rough um, timeline for myself. And we do hope to be in full swing production by this summer. And it does still seem to be like that, like that's still on track. With COVID-19, that might be a little bit tricky. We just have to see how it plays out. Um, A lot of the places that, again, their birth centers so of course they're being incredibly careful and there's been some events that i was hoping to capture on camera that has been been postponed to like late summer fall um but we wanted to start in like the summer into next fall um i would say winter of 2021 yes yeah that would be a good time to expect. I do think you there will be content coming, rolling out, right. um, leading up to the larger film. So I won't leave everyone hanging for mm-hmm. a, year, a year and a half. <laughs> well, we'll definitely have to get you back on the show as uh, filming commences um, and the production really gets ramped up so that we can get another update from you and, and maybe have a convers- another conversation about how the film is shaping up. Um, Absolutely. So that's all I have today. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me about your project. I think it is absolutely 100% important and um, very important for you to be able to use this platform that I have to talk about something that you clearly have a serious passion for um, that I, has gotten me stoked about it. Um, so before you go, though, you want to tell our listeners where they can support the project. I know you have a GoFundMe. Um, maybe where they can support you and your team if you have uh, like a Twitter account or some other social media where we can pay attention to updates about the film? Absolutely. So my personal Twitter account, which is a lot more political, um, and it is a little bit more on the electoral politics side, although part of the film I wanted to add is like, I'm not just wanting to have this to be a lobbying effort for top down um mm-hmm. uh top just top down measures i think we should be building dual structures if anything with covid-19 <laughs> that's very evident that it should be <laughs> i'm a, a big fan of communes i think i am very partial to syndicalism <laughs> same um so so i do think um we should be focusing on both aspects, but like on my Twitter, people probably think I'm all about electoral politics, but don't let that fool you. It's just, you know, the zeitgeist. Um, and, uh, and you can see that on my Twitter account, which is Canary Filmmaker, um, all one word. The film's account is Canary underscore film. So. Very cool. And we'll post links to the GoFundMe, to your Twitter account, um, and the a couple of collectives that you've mentioned in the interview for any of our listeners who are interested in it. Um, Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. You're welcome. Thank you so much.